this parable in which we are looking at speaks about repentance and the joy of heaven. The joy of heaven. Now, I have spoken and I've preached this message before. It's been a very, very busy week and, and uh, I was wrestling with the Lord in prayer and I, uh, it was, I could not quite wrap, get everything together in First Peter, okay, in chapter 4. So to do justice, I said, Lord, help me to go in the direction that you would have us as Redeeming Grace Church to focus on. And I prayed about this. Thought about, well, to talk about Thanksgiving. After Thanksgiving, what does Thanksgiving mean? Thanksgiving, as Brother Keith said, it's an it's a everyday thing from our hearts to give thanks unto God, right? I thought about that. I thought, well, maybe I could speak about Thanksgiving. And it seemed like in prayer, the Lord didn't, I didn't want to go in that direction. So I, I kept thinking, okay, and praying. Lord, what, what do we need to hear? What do we really need to hear? What is your heart? And I thought, if you look in the Scriptures, the heart of God is the souls of people. It's not just having knowledge about God. It's knowing God intimately and knowing God personally. But it's also reaching the world and desiring them to be to know God. That they may know God. Because people are perishing by the millions. And I'm thinking, I need this. I need to be reminded that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. This is His heart. This is why He came. It's all about Him, right? It's all about the glory of God. God's going to be glorified regardless. At the end day, the judgment, after the judgment of the unbelievers and the believers, and after it's all said and done, Every, the Bible says every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So every knee is going to bow. Some's going to be bowing that's going to perish forever in eternal torment against the wrath of God. Then, some's going, then the saints of heaven is going to bow. Everybody's going to bow. Well, as you well know, we can't cause people to bow. We can't cause to bring a person into the kingdom of God. But God can. That's the miracle of the new birth. That's why Scripture says it is impossible. <laughs> it's really impossible for anyone to get into the kingdom by themselves. They can't. You and I can't get into the kingdom by ourselves. How can we come into the kingdom? The Spirit of the living God must do a work of regeneration. A new birth must take place. A new heart must be transformed within us and we must be transformed on the inside out. Not the other way around in which so many people think. So somehow I've got to be good and I've got to earn my way to heaven. I've got to do these good works. I've got to go to church more. I spoke to someone here not long ago. He was sitting on the side of the road and I had the opportunity to witness to him and I asked him some questions. And I said, how, 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 would, how would you in your viewpoint come to know God? He said, go to church more. And I said, oh, my friend, that's way out there. I said, church is essential. I said, but that's after you come into the kingdom. I said, you, got, you must come into the kingdom by 
focusing on one person, Jesus Christ. I said, I said I'm a pastor of a church, but first and foremost, I'm a Christian. And I'm not going to point you to my church. I'm going to point you to Jesus Christ. I said, people's in church going to hell that knows about God and don't know God. I said, friend, you need to know who you are and who God is. So, in saying that, this is what this parable is really about. It's the recovery of the lost sheep. It's about the repentance and the joy of heaven. It's, it's about with joy of the joy of God. You don't hear that often spoke of, do you? How about God's joy? How about what, what does God delight in? What is the joy of God? What does He delight in? So in saying that, we're going to look at this wonderful parable. Go with me, please, to this. I, I personally believe one of the greatest parables found in the Word of God in the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. Chapter 15. Great chapter. We're going to begin with um, a section beginning at verse 1, which runs to verse 7. I'm just, we're just going to look at that one section. But there's really three parables in one here. We're going to look at the first parable. It's a cluster of parables. It's a trinity of parables. There's three, but it's all in one. So Luke 15, beginning at verse 1 to verse 7. Hear the word of the living God. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Verse 3, So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And I say to you, likewise, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner, one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Praise God. Let's all pray. And let's seek our Lord once again in this time as we hear His Word. Our Father in heaven, You are the one true living God. You're not the God of the dead. You're the God of the living. You're the God and Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But most of all, you're the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God of the Scripture. Oh Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd of the sheep. The Good Shepherd of the sheep, who through the blood of the everlasting covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to seek and save the lost, the lost sinner, That's your heart. That's your heart, Lord. And we desire to have your heart. And Lord, we pray that your spirit 
would just burn this word within our hearts today. Lord, I, I have no desire to focus on any style of preaching here this morning. Lord, I just, my desire this morning is, is, is your servant, Lord, is to convey your message to your people and to feed the flock of God. So, Father, help me as I speak and help each and every one of us to, to hear what you have to say to the church. And, Father, for this one purpose, Jesus came into the world to seek and save the lost. So, Lord, I pray within this hour, give us ears to hear and a heart to understand. And may we be able to comprehend by Your Spirit with all the saints, as Scripture says, the width and the length and the depth and the height. And to know the love of Christ. To know the love of Christ, which passes all knowledge, that we may be filled. That we may be filled. Lord, fill us with all the fullness that You have for us. And we ask this for Your glory in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. This is a great truth that's presented before us in this wonderful parable. The great truth that is really the theme of this entire chapter in 15 is the revelation, this one revelation of heaven, that heaven rejoices over the recovery of the lost. That God desires to seek and save the lost and recover them. That's the theme of Luke 15. You can see this in verse 7. Notice what it says. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Then you jump to verse 10. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, heaven rejoices. God rejoices. And then you look at verse 32. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is now found. There you have... The whole focal point of what this chapter is really about. The characteristics of joy. That God rejoices. The angels rejoice. Heaven rejoices over one that repents. One sinner that repents. The characters then change. There's a shepherd who finds and recovers a lost sheep. Then there's a woman who finds a lost coin, and recovers it. Then you see a loving father that recovers or restores a lost son. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And actually, in the parable of the lost son, there's really two lost sons. One's lost on the inside of the house, and then one's lost on the outside. So really, that's about two sons. But the theme doesn't change, and the main point is is always the same. What is that? The joy of heaven over lost sinners who repent and are found and are restored. Now, this is the heart of God. This is God's heart. C.H. Spurgeon 
and other writers remind us that the three persons of the Blessed Trinity are linked together in the recovery of the lost. Let us not forget this. The Father is part of it, the Son's part of it, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. They give us this observation, and I quote Spurgeon here. The first picture, he says, we have Christ as the good shepherd laying down his life to save the lost sheep. And the second picture, the woman sweeping the house for her lost coin is an illustration of the Holy Spirit working through His church. The saved. To save others. Then, you have the Spirit's work naturally following the shepherd's task. So in the third picture, God is suggested by the Father seeking His lost child. And here He says, The Divine Father is before us and all His abundant love to seek and save the lost. End quote. You know, I used to think when I first came to the Lord and when I was newly converted, I always used to think that this whole story is about just the lost objects. It is significant and it is part of it that God recovers what is lost and what is valuable and precious to Him. But if you really look deep within this chapter, it's all about the glory of God. It's all about God's glory. The celebration of heaven. That God joyfully delights to see those who come to Him. And we know that no one can come to God within their own power. So, you see within the first two parables, that God is the seeker. He's the seeker. He seeks out, as a shepherd, we see, we will see, seeks out the lost sheep. And then, there's a woman who seeks the coin. She tears the place apart to find that one coin. A valuable, valuable, precious coin to her. And then, we see repentance. And then it's like Jesus gives in the parable that he had to repent. He had to come to himself and go to back to his Father. So repentance is really a focal point as well. So, but it's the love of the Father. It's the love of God that's really the focal point along with repentance in this great story. So, we, we have this all together. Now, so we have here in chapter 15 of Luke's gospel, there's not so much as, like I said, three parables, as so many people say. But it's really one parable Jesus gives. It's one parable, but with three different aspects to it. It's like a cluster. So the point is that there's the great love of God and that God desires to seek out that which is lost and He does a great work through His Spirit to, to bring them back, to recover them. Now, the aspects by, by uh, all means of this is a triune parable. And Jesus sets forth the supreme and the sublime truth that as the Son of Man came into the world to seek and save the lost. And we need to keep that before us. Jesus said that so many times in His ministry. But this is the reason why He came. 
Usually the parables of Jesus were very simple. There were simple sketches. And each of them standing out with their own distinctiveness. Again, each of the story, and I should say each story of this one parable, has to do with one main point that our Lord Jesus was teaching in His perfect wisdom. You think of it now, when He taught, there was no mistakes in His teaching. We're talking about perfect wisdom. And He knew exactly how to convey that. And I find it really an act of grace to even give this parable to the self-righteous Pharisees at this point. Because most of us would say, we have nothing to do with it. But Jesus loved souls so much, even the hard-hearted, callous Pharisees, He reached out to them. Now, a lot of times, it, there was always grace, but a lot, uh, many times it, there was scathing rebuke. But altogether, it's the heart of God. So we, we see what God loves, and we also see what God hates. God hates pride. So we see the hatred of God here in one sense, if you understand what I'm saying. God hates the self-righteousness, the pride, the the haughtiness. And where was it found the most? Within the religious circles in that time period. It was the poor that desired to hear the gospel. It was the sinners that Jesus reached out to and ate with and and, and rubbed shoulders with, so, so to speak. So Jesus' teaching was perfect. And here, it's the joy of God that's over the salvation of the lost. And the first of these is, a ser- uh, is, is what we see is a series is a parable of the lost sheep. And we follow a familiar pattern in seeking to understand this great parable. Now, we need God's help in this. And, but it's a lot of times, <laughs> I, I, I come to find this out, a lot of times we can, we can make it harder than we should make it harder. What we need to do is humbly bow in prayer and say, Lord, teach me the simple things. But really the simple things is the profound things. And a lot of times we strain, a lot of times in our flesh. But when the Spirit of God starts to teach us what the Scriptures teach, it becomes clear to us. And that's why God has to open up our ears. So we'll be seeking to understand this parable. And I want to talk a lot about the parable this morning. I definitely want to focus uh, a lot on the content. But we want to see a lot what the parable is saying, right? First of all, in my first point, I'd like to give you the context of the parable. Because to understand what is really being said, context is king, right? This is a step which all too many teachers of our day seem to ignore context. This is why... We have so many misinterpretations about the parables. We always must go to the context. Not what I want it to say, but what does God say regardless. Because whether we're dead or alive, God's saying what He's saying, right? That's important. So context is king. Second... I'd like for us to look at the, and examine the, the communication, the communication of the parable. First, the context of the parable. Then we will look at the communication of the parable by Jesus. That focuses our attention, especially on those details of the parable that's stressed by Him in the context. 
And then third and last and final, we will look at the explanation, or should I say the application of the parable that's offered by Jesus Himself. So you have the context, the communication, and the application. Let's look at it. Look at the context of this parable. The context of the parable of the lost sheep. So in order for us to properly understand the teaching of this parable in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep, it's extremely important to understand both the broader and the more immediate context. There's a broad context and there's an immediate context. Let's look at the broad and the immediate. First, the broad, the broader The broader meaning, the context, includes key passages both from the teachings of the prophets in the Old Testament and from the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself in the New Testament. Now what am I talking about there? For example, in the days of the prophet of Ezekiel. Let's take Ezekiel for example. God warned the leaders of Israel. As you well know, the prophets spoke to Israel who were supposed to have been shepherds of His people who had failed to protect and care for them. So as the Holy Scriptures tells us from 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God, speaking of the prophets, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God was literally breathing on these men to say, thus saith the Lord. It was supernatural. Ezekiel, the prophet, was one of those holy men of God that was moved by the Holy Spirit. You have Daniel, you have Isaiah, and you have many, many other prophets. But let's look at Ezekiel. He foretold a day when God would come to seek and save the sheep. Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 34. Let's look at this. This is the broader context. And to understand what Jesus is really saying in this parable, we must see this context. So we go to Ezekiel chapter 34, and beginning at verse 11. Chapter 34, verse 11. God is the true shepherd, right? Notice what He says. And I like to read it all the way to um, verse 19. This is the Word of God. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloud and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of the Israel and in the valleys and in the ha- and, and all the inhabited, inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture. And their fold shall be on the mountain, high mountains of Israel. And there they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in the rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. And I will feed my flock and I will make them to lie down, says the Lord God. And I will seek what was lost and bring back 
what was driven away, and bind up the broken and strengthen that which, what was sick. And I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. And as for you, O, o my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. Is it too little for you to have eaten up the pasture that you must tread down with the feet of the residue of your pasture and to have drunk of the clear waters that, must, that you must foul the residue with your feet? And as for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet and they drink what you have fouled with your feet. And it goes on. There are... Many times that in this book you see that there are shepherds that really are not God's shepherds. But here it speaks, if you notice in the, in the context, that God seeks out His own sheep. He seeks them out. And He will bring them home. And God always brings His elect home. The elect will come. Now, as for us on this side of eternity, we don't know who the elect is. But we are to obey our Lord's command to go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. And as that word goes forth, not our word, but God's word, Jesus said it, My sheep hear my voice. They will come. And He said that. All that the Father gives will come to me. And then he said, Jesus said this, and he that comes to me, I will no wise cast him out. Wonderful passage of Scripture. So the commentary of the New Testament, his use of the Old Testament, deals prospectively with Jesus' application of Ezekiel, Ezekiel's passage to himself as he takes up the metaphor of the Lord as a shepherd who seeks his lost sheep. That's basically what is said there in Ezekiel 34. Jesus asserts that He does the work of God whose love and mercy for sinful and weak people is reflected in Jesus' calling tax collectors and sinners to Himself. To repentance. To repentance. And as Jesus' audience, He has an audience here. Most of the time when Jesus taught, it, his, many times... It wasn't in the synagogues. It was out in the highways and the byways. He actually went into a boat once and basically preached from the boat. But most of the time when he taught parables, it was on the, long, the roadside and along the way and, and he was conversing. He taught constantly on the road. Amazing. And so as Jesus' audience is consisting here in this parable of the Pharisees and the scribes, these were the religious scribes. They were, they were the, the, the theologians of the day. The know-it-alls about the Word of God. They had all this head knowledge of the law. And, and here they are, the Pharisees and the scribes who complained to Jesus that He eats with sinners. What do you do in eating with sinners? And then Jesus... In, in a loving and a wise, truthful way, He challenges them. Jesus loved to challenge people. Challenges them to understand themselves as 
shepherds, but the, the Pharisees and the scribes lacked concern and mercy. They did not have mercy for sinners, did they? Jesus told them that. He actually called them hypocrites and snakes and vipers. And He said, in the inside, you're, you're full of dead man's bones and filth and putrid inside of you. And on the outside, you look all cleaned up and white as sepulchers. Sounds like people today we know of, right? The Pharisees and the scribes lack the concern and the care and the mercy for sinners that which echoes in Ezekiel 34. So in which God directs the prophet to speak against the leaders of the nation of Israel who neglect their duties and leave Israel scattered, as it says, like sheep without a shepherd. You don't care. And a shepherd cares. A shepherd cares for his sheep. He loves his sheep. Announcing that God Himself will seek out rescue and care for the sheep. So Jesus' parable gives an indication to the scribes and the Pharisees for for their failure to be the faithful shepherds of God's flock. And implies that Jesus' love and mercy for sinners is consistent with God's mercy. Care for the sheep. You know, listen very carefully. There's Our Lord Jesus Christ Himself is that very fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. It's so crystal clear, not only from this parable, however, but it's also clearly in, indicated in other teachings of Jesus as well. For example, on several occasions, Jesus made it by quite plain to the disciples that He was the promised coming anointed one, the Lord, the Messiah, the Lord to seek and save His sheep. To seek and save His sheep. We see this in Matthew chapter 10. You can go with me very quickly there. Look at Matthew 10. Matthew chapter 10, look at 5 through 7. He says to the twelve apostles that he gives instructions. And these twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter into a city of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver, nor copper are in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. So you see there, He sends them out first to the lost sheep of Israel. Then if you go to Matthew 15.24, look at verse 24 in chapter 15. But He answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The house of Israel. He comes to Israel first. Then if you go to John 10, that wonderful chapter. John 10.
Look at verse 11 through 16. 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling. And he does not care about the sheep. Then Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep. And I am known by my own. And as the Father knows me, even so I I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. He's speaking here about the Gentiles. The sheep are the elect of God. Then in verse 16, and other sheep, that will eventually be the Gentiles that will hear. He says, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now that's a perfect illustration, but look at verse 24 through 28. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. And you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Notice that. You are not my sheep, as I have said. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And then he says this, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. He's basically telling the the religious people that was contradicted him here, You're not of my sheep. Now, I don't know about you. They didn't get that. Jesus plainly told them in in, in another section, you will die in your sins. And when Jesus says you're going to die in your sins, they died in their sins and they perished. They were not of the sheep. God's sheep. Now, so Jesus was sent first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's very plain in Scripture, isn't it? That's exactly why John 1 verse 11 says, He came unto His own and His own did not receive Him. Verse 12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right, the power, the privilege to become the children of God to those who believe in His name. And I love verse 13, Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It's God that does the work. So, He he would seek the other sheep, not of this fold, which means that He will seek out the Gentiles, Eventually, the gospel, as you well know, there was a transition. After Israel's rejection, Paul talks all about this in Romans chapter 9 and how God orchestrated, and, and Paul really gets, he, got, he really falls on his face before God as, as the man of God he was and the great missionary and the theologian he was and understanding the plan of God, but how God orchestrated it through the rejection of Israel by crucifying Christ and then Christ rising again. Notice, Israel rejected him, rejected Jesus. They rejected their king. They rejected the Messiah. But through that rejection, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. But it was all in God's timing. 
So the initial focus on the lost sheep of Israel will be especially helpful in our understanding of this parable in Luke 15. So we have passages that provides the broader context, the proper background for understanding the parable in Luke 15. So this background helps us to understand just how important this analogy is that would have been to Jesus and, and those people in His day as He spoke and as He was speaking this parable. And it helps us to understand that also that the scribes and the Pharisees, again, the so-called smart theologians of that day, they would not have missed the points that Jesus was making. They understood truly what He was saying. They did not have ears to hear spiritually, but when Jesus conveyed the truth, they knew. They just rejected Their heart was hardened. Unbelief. Unbelief. So they would not miss it. So there's the broader context, and then we have the immediate context. The immediate context is found in the first three verses of the passage before us. Notice verse 1, back to Luke 15. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. So in order to get the point of the parable, we need to understand just who made up the two groups, who's made up the two groups being referred to here, right? There's two groups of people. There's the tax collector, that's one group, who were those who collected taxes. They were the scoundrels of that day. They were. They were the rejects. No one liked them. Who liked the tax collector? Who liked someone coming after your money? Who liked those that were like Levi? Zacchaeus. There were those tax collectors that on behalf of the Roman government, right? Jews who were regarded as thieves and traitors. Read the Scriptures, you see that. And as such they regarded as especially heinous, scoundrels, Extreme example of sinners. Again, Zacchaeus comes to mind. He's a, he's a big one. Levi. Jesus calls to himself to follow him. In Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus was actually a chief tax collector. He was one of the head tax collectors. And he was very rich. He, got, he was rich off of people's money by collecting them. And you can read that in Luke 19, verse 1 through 9, but, it, but this leads to the next term that which referred to as sinners. Sinners. These are the sinners. These are the scoundrels. They are greedy. They are the, the scum. And certainly they were such, but here the term doesn't refer to all who have sinned, but which would include everyone, but rather it is being used in a specialized sense. Specialized sense. What do I mean by that? Well, the ESV study Bible captures the proper uh, um, significance of the term sinners. And I quote this from a study Bible here. The Reformed study Bible. Quote, Pharisees would have regarded as sinners anyone who failed to keep God's law as they interpreted it. And the term here seems to reflect a commonly under, uh, understood meaning by which it included both guilty of publicly known sin and others who did not keep the strict purity requirements of the Pharisees, end quote. So this 
Thus the term here is sinners. Sinners was used by religious establishments. And that it describes those who were regarded as outcasts and the scum, not only because they were actually open sinners publicly, but also because they did not follow the legalistic traditions of the Pharisees and the scribes. They were rejected, they were considered scum, these are outcasts. Now, on the contrary, those who followed the Pharisaical way were regarded as righteous. Oh, you had to be righteous to be part of the Pharisees and scribes. You got to be in their group. You had to be in their little clique. You know what I mean. You've seen it. So often do we see it. Man pretends to be so religious. Religious. The more religious he is, the more good he is. A fact that will become very crucial as we understand Jesus' application on this parable later on. What is important to observe here is this, that these outcasts, these tax collectors, these sinners in which Jesus is referring to, they were flocking to Jesus. They were going to Jesus. Jesus ate with them. And yet these scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, Jesus called them, were talking about Him and they threw that word He eats with sinners. He's a friend of sinners. Jesus was a <laughs> Well, anyway, these self-righteous Pharisees were on the wrong path, weren't they? Sad to say. Luke 15, 2, look at verse 2. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, they murmured, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Notice what they're saying about Jesus. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees not only viewed these people as sinners and outcasts, but also as unclean. They were unclean. Don't even get around them. Don't even touch them. Don't even associate them with them. They believed that the close interpersonal contact with such people as would be involved with eating with them. To eat with them? That's serious things. As the Pharisees would look at it, that's a don't even get a what, what's what's Jesus doing eating with such rejects, scum of the earth, the scoundrels. So they didn't like it at all when Jesus had meals with them. In fact, this verse is a complaint about Jesus and his disciples that wasn't new. The same complaints were registered when Jesus called the tax collector Levi, as I mentioned earlier, to follow him. And Jesus had dinner at his house. And how about Zacchaeus? He had dinner with him. Wonderful. Now, I'm not going to go there, but Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 30, uh, you see that this passage of Luke 5, we realize that even more than a risking ritual impurity, when Jesus spent time with such people as tax collectors and sinners, He was also plainly denying legalistic standards. To be in their clique, the Pharisees, the scribes, thought it was so important, had to be part of their group. Had to be part of their little holy club. Jesus thought there was something more, far more important, which is why he begins to teach them in a series of parables. And, and this is introduced in Luke 15. 
in verse 3, He spoke this parable to them saying, and this leads to my second point of the communication of the parable. Now we go to the communication of the parable. Here you got the content. Look at verse 4. What man of you, among you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that one which is lost until he finds it? Notice the wisdom that how Jesus brings them in. There, there are a couple observations that's worth noting here in this situation, in, in this story, in, in this parable that's described. First of all, the New King James translation here is the Greek that, which speaks of the wilderness. The wilderness. That could be a bit misleading with the passage, but it might indicate that the sheep were all in an unsafe place. But I think it would be better. There's another translation I think is a little bit more accurate. The ESV says open country. The open country. There was an open country. Or the NASB says an open pasture. So you have wilderness, open country, open pasture. But I would think open pasture would be more uh, accurate. But you get the point. Jesus was simply referring to an uninhabited area, places where sheep go to graze. And (laughs) the second observation is here is, is rhetoric. It's rhetoric. It's a, it's a question here that he gives and he expects an answer. And of course, no man among us wouldn't even lead the 99 safe sheep to go seek that one sheep. Right? Some think it would be odd that Jesus would even ask a question seriously to expect such an answer. And of course, who? They wonder who. Who will... Look after the ninety and nine that's left behind. Who will, who will look after the ninety and nine that are safe in the fold to go after that one sheep that needs to be rescued? Well, Jesus doesn't concern himself with the, that, and he doesn't expect his disciples to be concerned about it either. But there's no doubt because what he is describing is a realistic situation in which it would be expected that more than one shepherd would be looking after 100 sheep. So what's the point? The point is this, is that the 99 are safe. And there's no need to be sought out. The emphasis for the moment is on the fact that the shepherd cares so much and loves so much that one lost sheep. And that's what Jesus is getting across. That's the communication. He's saying there's one sheep that's gone astray out there. He, the shepherd cares enough to go after him. He personally goes after that sheep that has gone astray, seeks it out, he finds it, and he recovers it. Isn't that our Lord? How much he cares for that one soul. Look at verse 5. And when he had found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And notice the two things here which happens. When the shepherd finds and recovers that one lost sheep, first the shepherd lays it on his shoulders. Don't you love that? He lays it on his shoulders. There's such care and tenderness. There's such love for the sheep. Jesus is such a wonderful Savior. 
He's a glorious Savior. Oh, He's Lord, but He's Savior too. And actually, He's not going to be Savior unless He is Lord. But you see, He lays it on His shoulders, which indicates the great care that Jesus has as a shepherd taking the sheep, bringing it back to the flock. He treats the sheep with great tenderness, with great care. He protects it. He cares for it. As we read earlier, a hireling doesn't care, does he? He could care less. A hireling's in it for the money. He's in it for the hire. The hire. The money. About himself. So be a shepherd, you must be selfless. You know, this probably also indicates that the sheep is too weak also to return to his own. I would think so. The sheep is just too weak. He can't make it back. He can't make the journey back. So he puts them on his shoulder. And that shepherd takes it for him. He goes the rugged ways for him. The scene clearly portrays that the care of Jesus that has for the sinners as he seeks to restore them. Notice also that the sheep is lost until the shepherd finds it and that the sheep cannot restore itself. He cannot restore himself. He needs someone to care for him and to love him and to seek him out and put him on the shoulder and take him back. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Jesus did for us. Hallelujah. He did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to Him owe. The shepherd must find the sheep and restore it. And what a beautiful picture this is, isn't it? And what's this a picture of? Inability. The sheep does not have the ability to go back home and to be restored, the shepherd goes after him. He does the work. He puts him on his shoulder. He takes him back. Jesus did it. There's inability to save. We cannot save ourselves. Who can save ourselves? We can't save ourselves. No one can save themselves. That's why we need a Savior. If, my, if, you, if your good works or my good works can get us in heaven, then we have no need for Jesus. And as you well know, the gospel is about this. It's the good works of Jesus that gets us into heaven. Because none of us are good. No, not one. Not one. The picture of the inability. Jesus takes, uh, on, takes on, our, uh, on our behalf. He seeks us out. He saves us. He's a Savior. Look, time and time. Actually, the name Jesus means Jehovah saves he comes to save. This is what the psalmist understood so well when they cried out in Psalm 119, 176, I have gone astray. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Those of us who have been saved by the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, know that we are always dependent upon Him. Second, here, the shepherd starts rejoicing. Notice. He rejoices. This is what God rejoices in, which shows the ecstatic joy and the happiness that it brings to the shepherd when the sheep is found. Clearly portrays the attitude that Jesus has when tax collectors and sinners are brought to repentance. He's filled with joy. God is filled with joy. Jesus is filled with joy. We notice the way both of the reactions are opposite of the Pharisees. <laughs> Completely opposite in the scribes' reaction. They do not care for the sheep. 
They do not care for sinners. They want to stay away from them. They're unclean. Don't even get around them. As the scribes and Pharisees would say. In fact, they just complained when Jesus interacts with them. Verse 6. And when He comes home, He calls together His friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with Me, for I have found My sheep, My sheep, which was lost. This is God's heart. This is the heart of God. And this is where we should be thinking of as well. Here we see pictured the kind of joy that one can't help but share with others. It is, is it not that Jesus Himself, if He has joy over a lost sinner that is saved, He repents, and it is that we should all feel the same way. This leads me to the final point, the explanation of the parable. The explanation, the application of the parable is found in verse 7. Notice verse 7, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy, more joy in heaven over one sinner, one who repents than 99 just persons who need no repentance. Wow. Beautiful, isn't it? And, and in your devotional time, read Luke 5. Because in Luke 5, it basically speaks here that Jesus makes a reference to those who are called righteous and those who are called sinners. And this also reflects the way in which the terms used in the parable of the lost sheep and its explanation. He's using the terminology the way they should understood in order to challenge them. Jesus understood that there is none righteous, no, not one. He understood that. Of course. He's the only righteous one there is. He is the righteous one. The Pharisees, sins like pride and hypocrisy and greed, love of money, the praise of men in which they desired, it was so self-centered, desired the preeminence. Indeed, they, the very parable here implies an accusation of, um, of sin against them for they do not care for the sinner the way that God cares for the sinner. The true shepherd. The main point is that we know that Jesus wasn't saying here that they were truly righteous by no means. Rather, He was indicating that the only those who understand that they are sick, those who are sick, that need a physician, those that knew that they were sinners will see their need for the physician. And only those who understand that they, we are sinners and people are sinners, that they need repentance. That's the Gospel. See, we... I could almost paraphrase it like this in Luke 5, 31, 32. Let me read it to you. Those who think they are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick and know it and have not... I And then he says, I have not come to call the self-righteous, but those who know they are sinners to repent. That's what Jesus is saying. So in a similar way, we can understand Jesus' statement here in... In Luke 15, 7, this way I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in the heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who think they need no repentance. What's the implication? It's clear. Heaven and God rejoices. They rejoice over that one scoundrel, that reject, that outcast, that tax collector, that sinner coming to Christ 
and repents as he repents. But he will not rejoice over the Pharisees and scribes who think they already know and their pride. God doesn't bless pride. Matter of fact, He humbles them. And they will be humbled. That's why God calls us to humble ourselves. So that He doesn't have to humble us. You see, this brings us to the thrice repeated emphasis of joy. Look at verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. Joy, joy, joy. Repentance of a sinner is cause for great joy, great rejoicing. It is the kind of thing that should make us want to everyone to throw a party and to celebrate. The sinner has come home. He's repented. Hallelujah. Well, I'd like to conclude and give an a application here. The lost sheep do not go looking for the shepherd, right? It is the shepherd who goes looking for the sheep. It's that. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, I like what Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul said this, of whom I am the foremost. The old King James I like, for I am chief. I'm the chiefest of sinners. The Apostle Paul. Now, I want you to think of that. The Apostle Paul, who was once a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, one of the most religious men that thought he was doing God's service by killing Christians. A terrorist. A man that knew the Word of God. He knew God's Word, but he didn't know Christ. And Jesus came after him. Didn't He? Look at His conversion in Acts chapter 9. The greatest conversion story in the Word of God. He comes after him. He knocks him off his horse on the road to Damascus. On the Damascus road. And he sees a blinding light so bright. And he's blinded. But he hears the voice of Jesus. And the Scripture says that no one else saw the vision. Only he did. Now, what's amazing about that? That Paul, at that time Saul of Tarsus, was not looking to be converted. Christ came after him and converted him and changed him. That's encouraging, isn't it? That we have such lost sinners around us among our family, but Jesus knows how to go after them. Let me close with Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. It is a very surprising thing, a thing to be marveled at, most of all, by those who enjoy it. And I know that it is to me, even to this day, Spurgeon says, the greatest wonder that I've ever heard if that God should ever justify me. And I feel myself to be a lump of unworthiness and a mass of corruption and a heap of sin apart from His almighty love. And I know by full assurance that I am justified by faith which is in Christ Jesus and treated it is as if I had been perfectly heir with Christ. And yet, by nature, I must take my place among the most sinful. I, who am altogether undeserving, am treated as if I had been deserving. I am loved with as, as much of love as if I had always been godly 
whereas before I was ungodly. Who can help being astonished? I love that word. Astonished at this. Gratitude for such favor stands dressed in robes of wonder. End quote. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and save the lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time. Lord, we thank You for this wonderful parable of the lost sheep. Lord, we just see Your love in this. We see Your greatness in this. You see Your care in this. A picture that You are taking the initiative seeking and saving the lost sinner. Those that don't even care about you, but you care for them. And yet Jesus, a friend of sinners, a friend of the tax collectors, comes to seek them. And when they come and repent, which is a grace by you, Lord, what a joy there is in heaven. What a joy that you rejoice over with singing and yet on earth complaining among the Pharisees. Such opposites. Lord, help us have the mind of Christ in this and that we would seek and save the lost. At this time, Lord, especially this window of opportunity during this time of the year when everybody is so busy about buying and buying and spending, but Lord, help us to reach out, Lord, to them and give them the words of life And the living hope that Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. Oh Lord, we see this in Luke 15. How much love you have for those sinners. Help us do the same. Give us the compassion. Move us with compassion, Lord. As you was moved with compassion as well. So Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen and amen.